Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. For those listeners interested in great mystery and suspense, I just finished Joseph Lavallee's fourth novel entitled Performing Murder. It's a well-crafted whodunit that entwines the small-town wholesomeness of the Midwest with the intrigue, ambitions, and vengeance of the super-famous from Hollywood. This is the fourth novel of Lavallee's featuring Tony Harrington, a young newspaper reporter from Iowa. This story brings Hollywood to Tony's hometown for an on-location shoot. A famous actress is found murdered, and Tony finds himself entwined in the case when the authorities learn the actress was last seen alive, riding in his car. Again, the book is Performing Murder by Joseph Lavallee, available in hardcover from any bookstore or online seller, or from the author's website, josephlavallee.com. Also available as an ebook from Kindle or Nook. Now, stay tuned for my latest interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling writer Chanel Cleeton. Her new novel is The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba. Chanel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, how would you describe the novel? Uh, The book is set during the Gilded Age and uh, the fight for Cuban independence from Spain. And it features the stories of three women who become involved in this uh, fight for independence. And one of them, Evangelina Cisneros, was actually a real-life Cuban woman whose cause was sort of used as a rallying cry to get the United States involved in the conflict with Spain. And and do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba? Had you read about um, the the woman that you just mentioned in your research? So the idea actually came a little bit before I learned of her. I was down in the Florida Keys um, actually researching the book that preceded this one, The Last Train to Key West. And while I was down there, um, I was just able to visit the San Carlos Institute, which is a Cuban cultural heritage center. And also um, learned quite a bit about the USS Maine. And so I really became interested in this period of history. Um, One of the things I love about the books that I write is being able to explore my Cuban heritage um, further and kind of go back in Cuban history. And it was a period I really wasn't that familiar about, even though my family was in Cuba at the time. And so I wanted to, to learn more. And then as I started researching and started sort of building the characters that were going to inhabit this world, I came across a mention of Evangelina um, and was just really fascinated by her story. You know, it's often um, a little bit difficult, I think, to take a real life figure and, and adapt their life into a fictional novel just because real life, you know, often doesn't work in the same structure that our books do. Um, but in this case, she just had such a fascinating life um, and really kind of required no embellishment on my part. Uh, <laughs> the, the facts of her story on their own were quite dramatic. And I was just really drawn to to her plight and to looking at this moment in Cuban history. And, and what was that research process like for you to, to um, research her and, and, you know, include her in the novel? It was definitely extensive. Um, you know, the thing about this book is I kind of always say each of the topics on their own probably could have been their own novel. So I was really looking at the Gilded Age, um, the journalism wars that were happening at the time between William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. They were both um, two prominent publishers in New York, and they were sort of vying for uh, newspaper supremacy and and for circulation at the time. 
Hunter did a lot of research into their personalities and their newspapers and, and kind of how that influenced Cuban-American politics. And then also looking at, obviously, the fight for independence um, in Cuba and what was going on at the time at the hands of the Spanish. And then also um, the USS Maine and the Spanish-American War. So there were a lot of topics I probably utilized well over 100 sources, um, you know, trying to research each one and sort of bringing this world to life. Wow. Well, you mentioned your own Cuban heritage. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you don't mind um, talking about it. What is your own family's history of leaving Cuba for the U.S.? Sure. So my family came from Cuba in 1967. Um, My father and my grandparents came over as refugees after the revolution in 59. So they spent about eight years in Cuba and then came over on a freedom flight um, after the revolution. And um, really, I, you know, very much kind of grew up on their memories of their home and, um, you know, their love for their country. I, you know, I've talked about a bit saying that, you know, a lot of it for me is an interest in kind of going even farther back in history because so much of, I think, you know, my knowledge of Cuban history was so heavily influenced by the revolution and, and what my family experienced in that time period. Um, but even though, you know, my ancestors lived through the fight for independence from Spain, you know, I didn't know as much about that. So definitely for me, it's kind of a way to to go back through the past and imagine what my ancestors' lives might have been like and, and to try to understand um, that piece of history a little bit better. I'm curious, have you ever visited Cuba yourself? I haven't. Um, it's sort of, you know, for my family, a little bit of a, a sensitive subject, sure. particularly for my grandfather. Um we were going to go back in uh, 2016 for a family reunion. Um, I have family members that have gone back, but with my kind of immediate branch of the family, um, my grandfather just became very upset with the idea of going back and, and supporting the regime. And I think it kind of brought up a lot of painful memories for right. him of, of things that he'd experienced. So um, that definitely was kind of an impetus for me as well to, to want to learn more and, and to explore this part of my heritage a little bit more. Sure. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? That's a great question. Um, it's definitely been um, kind of an, an, an unexpected process um, throughout the way. I was in law school and really um, just knew I didn't want to practice as an attorney. <laughs> um, wasn't, wasn't the best fit for me, I think. Um, but I'd always been a lifelong reader. I loved books. Books have always been kind of a transformative influence in my life. And so I was just thinking about other things I was passionate about and thought, you know, why don't I try to write a book? And so I wrote my first um, manuscript and, um, you know, wasn't wasn't very good to be candid and <laughs> went through, you know, the process where I tried writing something else. And then I got an agent and, you know, went through all of that. And then I started sort of in romance and then moved into writing historical fiction when I really wanted to focus on um you know, telling my family story and, and and learning more about my Cuban heritage next year in Havana um, was kind of that that change for me where I went from writing romance to writing historical fiction primarily. Sure. Well, you just mentioned that that shift from writing uh, your early contemporary romance novels uh, before you made the leap to those more mainstream novels with historical settings with a with a bigger canvas. I'm curious what prompted that shift to writing those quote-unquote, larger books? And was that something that you always planned? Well, I think for me, writing is always um, kind of a very personal experience. You know, with my romances, I often drew on personal life experiences. Um, For example, I had a series set at an international university in London, and I myself attended an international university in London. 
So I always kind of have been exploring different parts of my identity, I think, um, through writing. For me, the move for Next Year in Havana really just came from the inspiration for the story. Um, my father, you know, I had mentioned we were planning a family reunion at the time, and my father and I were talking, and he told me a story of a night before my family left Cuba in 67, when everyone sort of met kind of under the cover of darkness, and they buried their valuables and, and mementos in the backyard of their home because they w- weren't sure how long they were going to be gone. You couldn't take really those things with you when you left the country. And so they were trying to preserve them for when they could return. And for me as a writer, you know, that question of that idea of of being in that position just really stuck with me. Um, it was actually a story I hadn't heard growing up until he mentioned it. And it, it really just kind of lived with me for a while. And I thought about what kind of story I would tell, you know, in certainly wanting to fictionalize the family, but also drawing from um, the culture that I grew up in and, and the stories that I had heard. Um, I was very close to my grandmother and so kind of looking at that relationship. And and that was sort of how Next Year in Havana came to be. And I knew it was going to be um, a little bit different from my romances, just in that the focus was um, a bit more on the granddaughter and the grandmother and their relationship and kind of that shared history um, versus the romances. Although I do always kind of put love stories in my books. Um, I think there's, you know, something so powerful about writing that aspect of the human condition. Um, and I really enjoy exploring those relationships um, between my characters and all of my books. Sure. Well, what is your writing process when you're working on a novel? Do you write an extensive outline before you start writing? I don't. Um, I'm sort of what we, <laughs> you know, anecdotally call a pantser. So I generally just sort of start with a kernel of an idea. And then through the research process, and often just through writing, um, my characters will kind of shape the plot for me. And often I find that I'm really surprised by the direction that stories take. You know, I mentioned earlier with The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, I didn't go into the book thinking I was going to tell Evangelina's story. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with her. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. But it just kind of came out that it, it really fit the the narrative that I was into and, and the role of women in this time. Um, and so often, you know, each writing day is sort of a new adventure. And I, I find myself um, kind of unexpectedly going through, um, you know, research paths I didn't anticipate or uh, the story will shift in a way that that kind of illuminates a, a new thing for me um, based on the characters. So are you working on a new novel now? I am. So I am, um, I'm working on two. So I'm, <laughs> I'm drafting my 2023 release and then I just got edits back on my 2022 release. So that one will be out next year. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of going through the developmental edit process on that one right now. Gotcha. 
Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? You know, I think that really, um, you know, there's so many different paths. I think you have to kind of find what works for you. And often that comes from trial and error and sort of practice and experience. Um, you know, there's some great writing tips that other people love that haven't worked for me. There are things that work for me that I know probably don't work for other people. Um, so I think it really is just something that the more you do it and the more you kind of immerse yourself in the craft, um, the more helpful it, it really is. I'm a big advocate of reading um, as much as you possibly can. I personally just feel like I learn so much from other authors, reading other genres. Um, I think it's also very useful to read in the genre that you want to publish in, just so you kind of understand the conventions of that drama uh, genre and, you know, understand sort of what readers' expectations are within that framework. But really, you know, I think this is one of those careers that you have to have the passion for it. Um, definitely you know, perseverance. I, I had so many rejections early in my career. And even once you're published, you know, you still come up against that um, very frequently. So it's, I think, one of those things that your love for the story and for the books um, really kind of propels you, you through this career. What, what kept you going early on when you kept getting those rejections? And what was the process for you to kind of, um, uh, I guess, to, so to speak, improve your, your writing to to the point where you, you know, got your first novel published? You know, I think it's just um, keeping at it, really. You know, in, in the beginning, um, I think it was just there was a story that I felt like I needed to keep telling. Um, it's kind of, I think for a lot of us, you know, you, writing can be challenging and there's the days that you sit down at your computer and you don't want to write. But at the same time, I think um, we all sort of feel like there's, there are stories inside of us and characters inside of us that are kind of pushing to get out. And so that definitely um, drives you to kind of sit down and put something on the page. Um, also, you know, just to be honest, I think it was a little bit of stubbornness probably <laughs> of, um, you know, I'm just going to keep at this until, until I can try to make it work. Um, and, and definitely confidence builds. I think the more you write, the more you get comfortable with, with storytelling and you find sort of your voice and, and what works for you. And then also, I think just finding the right book for the right moment um, with the right editor, the right agent that that sees something in you. You know, I, I the book that I got my agent with, um, you know, lots of agents rejected it and they just, you know, it wasn't for them. So often this business, I think, is just really about finding that reader that you speak to or finding an agent or an editor who sort of believes in you um, and, and likes the stories that you're telling and, and believes in those stories. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I've been so fortunate recently to read some amazing historical fiction releases. Um, so I read Island Queen by Vanessa Riley, which is out this summer, and that was phenomenal. I, I highly recommend um, that book. Uh, the Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray is out this summer as well. Um, that was wonderful. So I've definitely read um, some some amazing books, and it's always exciting to see, you know, what's happening in your genre and, and to see the books that, you know, readers are going to be loving. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books and novels? So my website is chanelcleeton.com, and I have uh, book club kits and, and sort of some um, teasers and information about my books that you can kind of get a behind-the-scenes look on my website. And then I'm also active on Instagram at chanelcleeton. And Facebook, um, which is author Chanel Clayton. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with the New York Times bestselling writer, 
writer Chanel Cleeton. Her latest novel is The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Chanel, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book of The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba by Chanel Cleeton. The audio book is narrated by Frankie Corzo, Holly Linneman, and Rebecca Soler. Available from Penguin Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. I think you'll find, Mr. Pulitzer, that as a woman, I'm able to infiltrate parts of society your other reporters can't access. Why, look what Nellie Bly has done in her reporting. I clutch a leather folio to my chest, the little speech I've prepared running through my mind once more. As I lean down to write my skirts, I stumble on an uneven piece of wet ground, my shoes slipping, the hem of my dress dropping into nearly an inch of dirty water. So much for making a good first impression. Bad luck, a red-haired newsboy shouts out at me, a mischievous grin on his face, and the latest edition of The World in his hands. It's busy today on Park Row, the street that slashes northeast from Lower Broadway and houses the major New York newspapers. Its proximity to City Hall, an attractive proposition for journalists keen to keep up with the inner workings of government. Horse-drawn vehicles form a steady stream of traffic, interspersed by the odd bicycle swerving between them. I gaze up at the building that houses the New York world. Number 99 Park Row, the endless stories piled on top of one another. The tallest building in the city, it was originally the site of French's Hotel, Legend has it that back when Joseph Pulitzer was a penniless veteran, he was thrown out of the hotel. Twenty years later, he returned, his fortune made, and bought the hotel, demolished it, and constructed this building, topping the new edifice with a 425-ton gold dome. Two miles of wrought iron columns support the world's largest press room, and hopefully, if all goes well, my new place of employment. Why, look what Nellie Bly has been able to do, I continue. I've rehearsed my opening salvo so frequently, the words have become rote. But it's done little to calm the nerves inside me. Whereas men go into these interviews needing to be good, I must be better. The crack Miss Bly and others like her have opened for women trying to break into the newspaper industry has made the seemingly impossible possible, but still no easy feat by any measure. The various articles I've written for smaller papers, enclosed in my late father's leather folio, represent the last few years of my life. The topics aren't as varied as I'd like. Plenty of pieces on women's fashion, some on the care and running of a household, from which I borrowed heavily from my mother's example, given my lack of a household of my own. The stray piece of relationship advice, which may seem odd from someone who is decidedly, and happily, single. To my readers, my nom de plume, A. Markham, is a married woman of a respectable age, her children grown, her days spent puttering around her house and dispensing advice when she is not otherwise occupied with her husband's comfort. I check in with building security, the appointment I made last week the only manner in which I could ensure admittance, given the tightly controlled access to Pulitzer's offices. I hurry up to the 18th floor, which houses the newsroom. All of my previous articles for the various small newspapers that have seen A. Markham's advice as fit to print have been sent by post. And so, for the first time in my life, 
I set foot in a newsroom. I am immediately, irrevocably in love. The newsroom feels like a living, breathing entity, the pulse in the air vibrating with excitement. There is shouting and keys tapping, and I've never heard more glorious sounds in all my life. Roll-top desks fill the room, placards on the walls that say, accuracy, 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 who, what, where, when, how, the facts, the color, the facts, surround the perimeter of the newsroom. Peeking out between the placards, windows reveal the city below, and beyond, a view all the way to the East River, New York City in all her muck and glory on proud display. It's absolutely perfect. A man approaches me. Can I help you, miss? I'm here to see Mr. Pulitzer, I reply. I have an appointment. Due to his declining health, Pulitzer is reportedly rarely at his office, favoring his private homes or yacht instead. So I seized this rare opportunity for a private meeting. The man's eyes widened slightly. And your name? Grace Harrington. Follow me, Miss Harrington. I walk behind him through the newsroom to Mr. Pulitzer's office, struggling to keep from gaping at each new sight that reveals itself. And at the same time, with every step, it becomes evident that I am the only woman in the newsroom at the moment, my appearance drawing notice from more than one quarter of the room. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.